During the Greco-Roman time period, they had some very unique customs, ones that would have made me really uncomfortable. They had community bathhouses. That's just one of those customs that would have made me really uncomfortable. Archaeologists have discovered those throughout Europe. They found them in the Mideast as well. They really were a part of most every community. Water was a, a precious commodity, and so they tried to figure out all kinds of different ways to save it. So they would set up these bathhouses. People would go there to take a bath, just like it sounds. That's what they would do. There were a couple different types of folks that would come. Those that were coming to take a bath, this is the part of the custom that would make me so uncomfortable, would go in, take off their clothes, and historians have argued about whether they would get buck stark naked or just stripped down to their underwear. doesn't matter. It's still way outside my comfort zone. They would take off their clothes and hang them on a hook inside the bathhouse or maybe put them in an antiquated idea of a locker, and then they would get into these large pools where they would take a bath. Well, that's the first group that would come to these. The second group came shopping. They were looking to increase the size of their wardrobe. You see, during those days, only a few people had more than one set of clothes. They were the wealthy. Most everyone else had one set of clothes that they tried to make last as long as they could. For the really poor ones, they only had rags, really, that they would wear. That was it. So when folks would go in there to take a bath, they would abandon their clothing and it would be available to anybody that wanted to come in and grab it. So then these other folks, the first group that had gone there to take a bath, would get out of the water and they would look to get dressed and leave and they would find their clothes gone. They got really upset. Now I've heard about practical jokes like that being pulled, might have even been responsible for one or two when I was in high school, of stealing people's clothes from the locker room. But this meant taking their clothes and leaving them having to try to find some way to get home without great embarrassment. These people were mad. Nobody was bringing their clothes back. They were mad. They couldn't just scream and say, okay, guys, that's enough, and somebody would show back up with their robe. Not at all. They had to find a way to get home without any clothes. In their anger, they started a custom. They would take tiny, thin pieces of tin they would write the name of the person that they believe stole their clothes from them on that little piece of tin. And then they would write a curse. They called it a prayer, but really it was a curse. They would write that curse on that piece of tin. A lot of times that curse would sound something like this. Whatever God they were praying to, they would address them. So they would say, and it was not Jehovah God, by the way. They would say, God, whoever they believed it was, stole my clothes. Would you take from them their sight? and any prospect of happiness they might ever have in the future. That's exactly how they would feel. They were that upset about it. And that's a pretty mild curse that would be written on these. Once they had written those things on it, they would roll up that piece of tin, or they would fold that piece of tin, and then they would pierce it with a nail. When they put the nail through the tin, these were called curse tablets. When they put the nail through that curse tablet... It was as if they were saying amen to what was written inside it, or so be it. It was their way of saying, I totally agree with everything that is in here. Then they would take the curse tablet, and more often than not, they would throw them into the pools that they were just bathing in, or they would nail them to the walls, or they would stick them in cracks in the walls. People's names were written on the outside of them. They were able to do this really is a means of scaring people more than anything else. 
They did not have a police force during those days. People took things into their own hands. They resolved their own conflicts, and this was just one way of doing it through sheer terror and fear. If someone found out that their name had been written on a curse tablet, oftentimes they would try to gather as much money together as they could and go to the person that had written out the tablet and try to purchase it back. They wanted to redeem that thing so that the curses would not come true. There was another group of people that would do the same thing. Most of them were ladies. People would write out on a curse tablet a prayer of love. Really, it was a curse of love. If you just hear about it initially, you think a prayer of love. Well, gosh, these guys must have been really enthralled with these ladies, and so they were writing out some great prayer of love. They weren't. They were writing out a curse that would cause that lady to fall under their control. They were prayers of control and absolutely heinous, just heinous in what they would write. And still they would do the same thing. They would roll them up, fold them up, pierce them with a nail. They would say, amen, so be it. I want these things to come true. Those ladies would try to redeem them back as well. Archaeologists have now discovered hundreds, literally hundreds, of these curse, curse tablets. They found them in Europe. They have found them in the Mideast. They have found them almost anywhere that a bathhouse existed. Now, there's a part of the idea behind that that could speak right to our flesh. Something do, or someone does something wrong to us, and we want revenge. And we want it quickly, and we want it powerfully. If we were to take a little poll around this room and ask how many people, by the way, we're not going to, how many people have felt that way at different times? Somebody did something to me, therefore I'm going to do something back, or I'm going to ask God to do something back. More than likely, we would see a lot of hands go up, or a lot of heads shake. We tend to feel that way, but that's in our flesh. We could actually read from the Old Testament and find some basis for those types of feelings. Listen to this from the psalmist. David writes these words in Psalm chapter 55, verse 15. Let death take my enemies by surprise. Let them go down alive to the grave, for evil finds lodging among them. Now that's good Old Testament teaching right there. Let death take my enemies by surprise. Again, in our flesh, that's the way a lot of people feel. That's what makes it possible for us to say things like this. Well, I'm just going to go Old Testament on that person. They did this to me. I got something to show them. That's where that comes from. But by the time we get to the New Testament, there's a, a brand new teaching that comes on the scene. It comes from Jesus. This is recorded in the Sermon on the Mount. I want you to hear this. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 43. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now here comes Jesus. To those that would write on curse tablets, for those that would look to exact revenge, for those that have this Old Testament philosophy of how to deal with others that have harmed you, Jesus would say, you need to love your enemies. Instead of praying for them to come under harm, you need to love them. Instead of hating, why don't you try loving? Instead of carrying a grudge, why don't you try forgiveness? Instead of simply looking to take, why don't you figure out how to give? He turned the world upside down in his teaching. He still does. 
He grabs hold of all of humanity and says, there's a whole new way of approaching relationships. There's a whole new way of approaching everything that is ever put in front of you. It doesn't have to be the way it used to be. Jesus brought this new love into the world and he taught it. For the last 2,000 years, people have been transformed by it. It is a piercing kind of love. Jesus, you see, would not write these things on a thin piece of tin. He would allow them to be written on his body, and he would be pierced to seal it. His amen, his so be it, would be attached to it. And it came through the piercings that he received. We get the first glimpse of that all the way back in the Old Testament. The idea of Jesus being pierced shows up there. That's amazing to some people that think the Old Testament doesn't speak of Jesus. But the truth is, in the book of Genesis, we find the appearance of Jesus. He goes all the way back to the beginning of time. So it shouldn't surprise us that we find glimpses and hints of what the crucifixion will be like, what his death will be like, even in the Old Testament. So let me show this to you in the book of Isaiah. Again, I hope you brought your Bibles with you. I hope you're following along. These are the kinds of things that you need to be familiar with. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5. Isaiah writes of the Messiah. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Worship team just a few minutes ago sang the words of that verse. They were put to song and and they presented those to us. The truth is there in the song and it is here in the Bible. But this is one of these verses that we need to pick apart and look at the words of it in a critical fashion. We're going to start with the foundational word. That's the word pierced. It's up on the screen right now. You can see it in Isaiah 53. But he was pierced for our transgressions. Now, if we take out the other descriptive words, we begin to see the significance of this verse. Here they are. Just take a look at these. We start with pierced. On top of that, we put the word crushed. And after crushed, we find punishment. After punishment, we find the word wounds. Now, take each one of those. Jesus was crushed for us. He was punished. He took our punishment on himself, and wounds were inflicted upon him. Wounds were inflicted on his body and on his soul and on his heart. All of that happened so that we might be, according to the book of Isaiah, healed. Now you might think to yourself, healed? Healed from what? I've never had terminal diseases. I don't have any major illnesses that I'm battling. What have I been healed from? I would offer to you, and so would the Bible, that you have been healed from the greatest punishment, or not punishment, but greatest illness mankind has ever faced. That is death. You have been healed from the curse of death. You have been healed from the punishment of death. I'm sure you've heard people say that there are only two things in the world that are inevitable, death and paying taxes. Well, death is out there for everybody to worry about, and a lot of people do. In the, the course of the next few days, taxes are out there for people to worry about. April 15th is coming up. I'm got a little rant for you. Here you go. Some of you are in the same boat that Tina and I are. You're going to get to write a, a significant check to the United States government and send that off this week. Well, that's, that's okay. I understand paying taxes, and we all need to pay our taxes. That's just fine. But here's my rant. We have three children that live in our home. Nick is our 20-year-old son. 
Now, it makes sense to me that Nick is over the age of 18, and he is not considered a dependent any longer. When he was in school, we received the school credits and all that stuff that goes with it. Eli is 17 years old. He is a junior in high school. He has another year and some odd months to go. But the new tax laws say that at the age of 17, you can no longer claim your children as dependents. He still lives in our home. By the very definition of dependent, he is still dependent. Some of you are shaking your heads. You know exactly what I'm talking about. You got that little surprise this year too. 17 years old, the kids get dropped off. Well, Eli has a part-time job. He works a couple of hours every day after school. He makes enough money to buy gas and do the things that he wants to do. Well, Tina figured out his taxes yesterday, found out that he's not only not getting all of his money back that he paid into the government, but he gets to write a check for $12. He's a 17-year-old kid, for heaven's sakes, and he has to write a check for $12 on top of all the other taxes that he paid. Something is wrong. Okay, my rant's over now. I'm just going to stop. Well, it may show back up later in the message. I don't know. We'll just leave that alone. So we can't do anything about taxes, and Jesus would never even try to do anything about taxes. But the truth is this. He did a great deal to help us overcome this curse of death. He healed us from it. Let me take you to the book of 1 Corinthians. I'm going to go to the 15th chapter of that book. 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 54. Paul writes to the church in Corinth, when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. There it is. We find out that we have victory over death. That's a quote, again, from the Old Testament, from the book of Hosea. Paul would use that to illustrate for all of us that death no longer has any power because of Jesus Christ. Jesus overcame that, and for every believer, every person that has given their lives to him, death has no sting. It carries with it no fear. Now, we can say all the time that we're not thrilled with the idea of dying, and it's just the process that comes into play. Christians say they have no fear of death. Now, there's a difference in that, because we look forward to being in the kingdom of heaven. We look forward to being in the presence of God. We look forward to seeing Jesus face to face. We have been healed from the fear of death. Now, if we had enough time to go into this, I'd take you to the book of 1 Thessalonians and we would explore what I call the great wink of God. Here's what I mean by that. We have all these people that live around us, many of them non-believers, that are scared of death. They are literally scared to death of death. And they're, they're terrified of the idea of what waits for them. And they're terrified of the process, everything else that goes with that. And you have Christians that say, you know what, death has lost its sting for me because Jesus was victorious over the grave. And, and so I don't have to worry about that anymore. But the great wink of God in the book of First Thessalonians is this, not everyone will face death because the time will come when Jesus is going to come back for his church. And when he catches up his church and takes his church up into heaven, the Bible says that those that have not died but are believers in him will be caught up and they will go to heaven. And so Jesus has, God has this great wink tucked away in the Bible that says, yeah, some of you aren't even going to have to worry about it. Because when I come back, it's going to be a non-issue for my church, for the believers. I love that. 
I just love that. We don't have enough time to go into it. So we'll leave that alone. Here's what we know from the book of Isaiah. We have been healed from the sting of death and the curse of death by what Jesus Christ did for us. And it begins with his piercing. I want to explore that for the next few minutes. To the best of my knowledge and the best count that I have going, Jesus was pierced at least six times in the last week of his life. Typically, we think of the piercings on the cross and the piercing of the spear into his side, and we think those are the only piercings. I count six. I want to show them to you. We'll count them down together. We're going to start in the Gospels. So turn back there with me. The Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 26, verse 47. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs, sent from the chief priest and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, Friend, do what you came for. Now, in my understanding of the Bible, the way I would read this, that was the first piercing Jesus went through. And it came from his friend. Person that he would have called a disciple, one that had just shared in the Last Supper with him, one that had traveled with him for three years, one that had been entrusted with the finances of his ministry, one that had been sent out to perform miracles in his name. And here he is betraying Jesus. In the last week of his life, he was the one who came up and kissed him on the cheek. Ever been betrayed by a friend? Then you understand what that type of piercing feels like. It goes right to the heart. It pierces worse than anything that could happen to our flesh. It's one of the most painful things that could ever happen. And in Jesus' life, it wasn't the only time that it happened. The Gospel of Luke would record this, chapter 22, verse 54. Then seizing him, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance, but when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him and seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, This man was with him. But he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. About an hour later, another asserted, Certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. Peter replied, Man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside, and he wept bitterly. Jesus was there. He was there when Peter disowned him. Can you imagine the look on his face when he looked back at Peter? It would have communicated the wounds that had just been inflicted. Not much different than what Judas had done to him. His heart was pierced. It was pierced by the people that were closest to him. Things get a little more physical after this, but I would offer to you that these may have been some of the deepest wounds that he had to deal with. That's just one of them. Now let me show you what happens next. We're going to go to the Gospel of Matthew again. Chapter 27, verse 26. After Jesus is met with Pilate, the Bible says, Then he, meaning Pilate, then Pilate released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Now a flogging in biblical days was a, a whip that either had glass or metal woven into the leather of the whip, 
or it had a large ball at the end of it. A cat of nine tails, if that's what he was flogged with, would have had nine different strands of leather coming off of it with that metal and glass woven into it or the large ball at the end. The ball and the glass and the metal were designed when they would whip a person in the back to grab hold of the flesh and rip it out, huge chunks at a time, whip it out. The law allowed 39 lashes in a flogging. The goal was to take the person that was being flogged right to the brink of death. It seldom ever took 39 times to accomplish that. And Jesus was just flogged. Pilate said, flog him, whip him. And his entire back was pierced. In fact, it was ripped to shreds. Some people would say that that was more painful than what he had experienced from Judas and from Peter. I don't know that it was. They're different types of pain. His heart has been pierced by this point, and now his body is being pierced. Now let me show you three and four out of this. We're going to pick up in verse 27. Then the governor's soldier took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand and knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. Now there's numbers three and four. We know that number one was the piercing of the heart. Number two was the flogging as it ripped up the flesh of his back. Number three was this crown of thorns. There was apparently some Roman soldier with enough time on his hands that he could take these thorns and weave them together into a crown, place them on Jesus' head, and with a club, with a club, they would drive those thorns into his head. Blood would run down his cheeks and into his eyes and more than likely into his mouth. That was the third piercing of just a week. Did you catch the fourth? And they mocked him. They spit in his face. They spit on him. These heretics. These pagans. These people that had no use for God. These people that had no belief in him whatsoever. These people that had no hope placed in him. They spit on him. Now we know that his body would be pierced so devastatingly that he could no longer carry the cross and they would pull Simon from Cyrene out of the crowd and they would place Jesus' cross on his back and he would carry it on to Golgotha. But at no point, never once in the Bible does it say that anybody was asked to come forward and wipe the spit off of his face. At no point in the Bible does it say that anybody was called forward to mop up the blood that was running down his cheeks that was mixing with all of that saliva. As far as we know, he went to the cross with it all over him pierced his soul. These people didn't know what he was offering. These people had no idea of what he was bringing to them. They spit on him. If you've ever been spit on, you know how deeply that pierces. If you've been mocked and you know that that mocking came out of somebody's heart, not just their mouth, you know how deeply that pierces. And Jesus went through that. The fifth piercing, this one's familiar to everybody. We won't even look at the scripture of it. It happened when they decided to nail him to the cross. They stretched out his hands and they drove nails through his wrist and they drove nails through his feet. And then they lifted that cross up and they dropped it into the ground, into a hole that was already dug for it. When they dropped it into the ground, it hit the ground with such force that he came to rest against those nails in his wrist and the nails in his feet. Can you imagine how jarring that was? The pain of having them driven through his skin would have been horrible, but now he's resting on them. I love the way one person says this. 
Somebody at the foot of the cross asked Jesus how much he loved him. He stretched out his arms to show him. And then he said, and I want you to understand it. So he said, drive nails into my hands so that they'll understand that it lasts forever. That's a good way of looking at it. That's how much Jesus loved us, but how painful. He was pierced to bring that about. I can't imagine. And when I do, it breaks my heart. Now look at number six. This one's found in the Gospel of John, chapter 19, verse 31. Now it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jews did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe. These things happen so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. There's the sixth one. I'm sure there were others. Those are just six that are countable. From the very beginning, the betrayal of his friends, all the way through to a spear going into his side. Jesus did all of that. Jesus did all of that willingly. He did every part of it for us. Now, we might ask this, and it it would be a fair question. Why would God allow that to happen? Couldn't he have saved us through some other means? Wouldn't it have been possible to bring salvation into the world and forgiveness of sins without having to send his son to the cross? Folks, I want you to listen to this. If you take nothing else with you, you take this home with you today. God was never more sovereign. God was never more sovereign than he was in the details of Jesus' death. It was necessary. It was necessary for Jesus to die on the cross for you. The Bible would actually lay that out for us in the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God was never more sovereign than he was in the details of Jesus' death. He knew exactly what he was doing, and so did Jesus. He knew exactly what he was doing. I would offer to you that Satan knew what was going on as well. By this point, everything was pretty clear to him. In the last week of his life, of Jesus' life, Satan would try to disrupt things. He would try to stop them, and God would make it happen. Now, let me show you something that I discovered this past week. I don't know why this is a new discovery for me, but it is. It's in the book of Acts. I have studied the book of Acts over and over and over again. Arguably, it is my favorite book of the Bible. Yet I just saw something that I have never seen before. That's the living, active part of God's Word. You may think that you have it pretty well figured out. You may think there is nothing else to learn. I have never been there myself. But you may actually get there, and then God will just turn you upside down and show you something brand new. God showed me something brand new this week that I ended up studying probably more than I should have. I was just fascinated by it, spent a lot of time in it. I'll show you what I'm talking about. Acts chapter 5, starting in verse 25. The apostles are being persecuted by this point. God is spreading the church out. He's sending people out to carry the message of the gospel to people that have never heard it before. And persecution was the means that God had to use. We're in Acts chapter 5, verse 25. 
Then someone came and said, Look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching people. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. Having brought the apostles, they made them appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Now the apostles are out telling everybody that the Romans crucified Jesus, that he was hung on a cross and that he rose from the grave and and the Romans aren't taking it very well. They don't want to be accused of this kind of stuff. So they've been locked up and now they're drug out into the city streets, into the square where they're going to have to give account. Verse 29, listen to this. Peter and the other apostles replied, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead, whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior, that he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel a teacher of the law, who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered the men be put outside for a little while. Now Gamaliel, he was a Pharisee, teacher of the law, a Jew, but he was also pretty good in leadership. He knew that they were on the brink of doing something that could cost them dearly, and they didn't want to do it. He did not yet want to martyr the disciples. So in perfect leadership, this is what he does. He says, we need to talk about this. Before any decisions are made, we need to have a sit down. And we need to do it without these men present. So he said, put them outside the room, close the door, lock it up tight, and let's talk a little bit before we make any kind of rash, hasty decision. And that's what they did. Listen to what Gamaliel goes on to say. Verse 35, then he addressed them, men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do with these men. Some time ago, Thutis appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, all his followers were dispersed, And it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go, for if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in, had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. This next verse is my favorite. Listen to this. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. Now, they'd been arrested, drug out of prison. They'd been questioned. They spoke their hearts. They'd been flogged 39 times or less. Then they were told, now stop doing what you're doing. And their very first act was to do what they'd been doing. They went about preaching and teaching. It is almost as if they looked back at all of these people and said, hey, that was a pretty good flogging. Now we got a message to share. And then they started preaching. I love that. All of that was happening under the power of God. But that's not the part that captured my attention. Did you catch that when Gamaliel had the apostles out of the room and the door was closed and it was locked, he started talking about two unique people, Thutis and Judas the Galilean? I've read the book of Acts in chapter 5 a number of times, but I have never let my mind come to rest on Thutis or Judas the Galilean. This week I did. 
I started digging around in some church history. I'm a fellow named Josephus and another guy named Origen, and I wanted to see what I could find out about these two guys. Thutis had 400 followers. He led a revolt, telling people that it was no longer necessary to pay their taxes, that Rome had inflicted upon them way too heavy of a tax rate, and he would do something about it. He could change it. He was put forward as a savior. He was put forward as a messiah. He was put forward as a Christ. Now, when we say the name Jesus Christ, a lot of times it rolls off of our lips like we're saying a first name and a last name. We talk about Jesus Christ like we would talk about Brian Stewart. But it is not a first name and a last name. Jesus was his name. Christ was his title. Christ means Messiah or anointed one. Jesus would have been referred to as Jesus of Nazareth or Jesus Bar-Jonah, the son of Jonah. Those would have been descriptive ways of referring to him until he rose up as the Messiah. At the point that he did, the term Christ was attached to him. When Peter was questioned by Jesus about who he was, Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You are the Savior. You are the Messiah. You are the anointed one. Paul would say that he preaches Christ and him crucified. He preaches the Messiah. He preaches the anointed one and him crucified. Jesus was the Christ. These other people, people like Thutis and Judas the Galilean, were wannabes. They would put themselves forward as the Messiah, as the Christ. So you could actually read their name if everything had worked out the way they wanted it to, as Thutis Christ. He got 400 people that would follow him. He tried to lead a military revolt against the Roman guards. It was put down. He was drug into the city square of Jerusalem. His head was cut off. And all of his followers dispersed. And nothing else ever happened. Judas, the Galilean, stumping on the exact same speech, saying, we don't have to pay these taxes. This is way too much. We shouldn't have to live under this burden. Got 2,000 fighting men to follow him. And he tried to lead a revolt against Rome so that they could break free, they could have their own lives. He was captured by the Roman guard. And Caesar decided that he would make an example of him. So he was crucified in the Jezreel Valley, the Valley of Armageddon. It was not just Thutis the Galilean that was crucified. All 2,000 of his men were crucified as well, according to the historians. 2,000 crosses were constructed, 2,000 holes were dug. 2,000 men were crucified so that everyone would know not to mess with Rome. And then to drive the point home, the historians say that Caesar left the crosses for decades. I want you to remember that the Jezreel Valley, the Valley of Armageddon, is visible from the city of Nazareth. Where was Jesus born? The Jezreel Valley, the Valley of Armageddon, sits between Nazareth and Jerusalem. And Jesus traveled that road over and over and over again. The punishment for saying that people did not have to pay their taxes and leading a revolt was always crucifixion, was always crucifixion. And that's what Jesus was accused of when they would bring him to stand before Pilate. That's exactly what they would say. This man says that you don't need to pay your taxes. That's what they were after. They were trying to get him counted among all of these others. Well, as I was reading in Josephus and Origen and some of the historians, here's what I found out. During the 33 years of Jesus' life on this earth, there were at least 18 wannabe messiahs. 18 that would try to attach the name Christ to their name. 
18 that would try to rise up leading these military revolts and every one of them was put down and that's what Gamaliel was talking about. He said, this thing's just going to go away. It's going to disappear. Don't worry about it. But it didn't. Jesus was different. You see, he didn't try to lead a military revolt with hundreds of men. He had 12. They weren't trying to fight against the government. In fact, when questioned about taxes, Jesus would pay his and somebody else's right out of the mouth of a fish. He would say, render under Caesar what is Caesar's. It's part of what makes this week so difficult, April 15th. Anyway, I'll stop there. My rant's already over. Jesus would do something totally different. Twelve men following him. And the movement would take off. And today it's continuing. Satan knew all of this, and he would try to use it as a means of stopping everything that was happening. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Pilate, this time of year, we always hear about Pilate. Pilate is an interesting individual in the Easter story. He was a governor of the region. It was his job to keep peace. He was sent there by Rome. No Roman governor wanted to be in the Mideast. They didn't want to go to Israel. They'd be upset if they had to go that way. They'd have rather been up in Europe and in a whole different society. But here's Pilate down in the, the Mideast. He's in the region where Jesus is at. He's watching over Jerusalem, and he's trying to keep order. All these different folks would rise up against the government. Pilate's job was to put them down. Nobody wanted the job. He was a coyote of a man, a complete orangutan. Yet a lot of times when we read the Easter story, we hear about Pilate somewhat softening his stance. We hear about Pilate saying that he doesn't find any reason to accuse Jesus and he wants to set him free, but instead Barabbas gets set free. And we could almost become sympathetic towards Pilate. Don't ever become sympathetic towards Pilate. He was not a friend of Jesus. He was not a believer. In fact, when he would say, I find no accusation against this man, what he was really doing was saying, the high priest aren't going to come into my court and tell me what to do. I'm not going to be controlled by anybody else. History would actually tell us and the Bible would tell us that he was such a horrendous man that no one was safe under his watch. Look at this from the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 13, verse 1. Now, there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. That's who Pilate was. People were worshiping. If he wanted to stop an uprising, he'd walk right into the temples and kill the people that were worshiping there. In this particular situation, they had already made sacrifices, animal sacrifices. And Pilate comes in and says, kill them all and mix their blood together with the blood of their sacrifices. That's who Pilate was. He was not afraid to execute anybody. He wasn't afraid to put anybody to death. History would actually say that Pilate killed so many people that Caesar was worried about an uprising simply because of that. He had killed so many people, executed so many people, that Caesar had to intervene, and he fired Pilate from his job. And then Pilate falls off the face of the map. History records nothing else about him because Pilate was such a terrible, terrible person. Well, as we continue on in Jesus' story, we'll find ourselves in places like this. Luke chapter 22, verse 66. This is where you'll really begin to see Satan show up. At daybreak, the council of the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the teachers of the law, met together, and Jesus was led before them. If you are the Christ, they said, tell us. Jesus answered, if I tell you, you will not believe me, and if I ask you, you would not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. They all asked, are you then the Son of God? He replied, you're right in saying I am. 
Then they said, why do we need any more testimony? We have heard it from his own lips. Then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate. And they began to accuse him saying, we have found this man subverting our nation. Listen to this. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Christ, a king. He's leading a rebellion and he's leading it just like everybody else. You don't have to pay taxes to Caesar. What are you going to do about it? They knew what Pilate would do. So Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. Then Pilate announced to the chief priests in the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. He was facetious as all get out. But they insisted he stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here. On hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean, and when he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased, because for a long time he'd been wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform some miracle. He plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there vehemently accusing him. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him. Dressing him in an elegant robe, they sent him back to Pilate. That day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they had been enemies. Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers of the people, and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither is Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. With one voice, they cried out, Away with this man, release Barabbas to us. Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. They at least knew that Barabbas would kill Romans. That's why they wanted him. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again. But they kept shouting, Crucify him, crucify him. For the third time, he spoke to them. Why, what crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him punished and then release him. But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified, and their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. You see where Satan was at? He was working through Pilate. They were friends. He was trying to keep Pilate from actually crucifying Jesus. He knew what it would mean. God was never more sovereign, not ever, than in the details of Jesus' death. And he overcame Satan's attempts even with Pilate. And Jesus was crucified. We look at Pilate and we wonder, why? Why would God let somebody like that exist? Maybe it was so Pilate could ask one of the most pointed questions in all of the Bible. It's a question that he had to deal with. It's a question that every person has to deal with. Like I say, it's one of the most pointed, most poignant questions in all of history, and particularly in Scripture. This is found in Matthew chapter 27, verse 22. What shall I do then with Jesus, who is called Christ? Pilate asked. Listen to that question again. What shall I do then with Jesus who has called Christ? Pilate asked. But you know what Pilate decided to do? He decided to crucify him. Jesus would hang on that cross and then he would be placed in the grave. And three days later, this is the best part of the story, he'd come out of the grave. He would rise again. And because of that, we would find the victory over death. We could be healed from sin and the curse of sin. All of that would be taken care of because of the resurrection. Aren't you happy that Jesus didn't remain on the cross? 
He was placed in that grave and he walked out of it so that we would have no fear of it. Death would hold no victory over us. But Pilate, Pilate had to ask this question. What then shall I do with this Jesus who is called the Christ? It's dramatically interesting to me that Pilate did not say, what shall I do then with this Jesus from Nazareth? He did not say, what shall I do then with this Jesus, the son of Joseph? What shall I do then with Jesus, the carpenter? He said, what shall I do then with this Jesus who is called the Christ? the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Savior. Pilate asked a question that every person is going to have to answer at some point. The Bible would say that the time will come when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But my friends, know this. If that happens after you have died, it's too late. You have to deal with that question before then. What are you going to do with Jesus? Is he just a good man? Is he just a teacher? Is he an angel, as some religions would teach? An archangel, some religions would teach? Or was he the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior? What are you going to do with Jesus? It is a personal question that no one else can answer. It is a personal question that everyone has to deal with and be faced with. What then are you going to do with this Jesus who is called the Christ. Why don't you stand and pray with me? Father, the piercing that you went through on our behalf is is mind-boggling to me. Stunning that you could do that and we would see it, the Bible would teach it, history would know it as a great act of love. But thank you for it. Thank you for loving us that much. Thank you for enduring that on my behalf, on our behalf. My prayer, Lord, is that you'll help us all deal with this question of Pilate. What shall we do then with you? My prayer, Lord, is that we'll all accept you as our Savior. We will call you Lord, and we will live accordingly. Thank you for hearing our prayers. In Jesus' name, amen.